0: Well, good morning. Today we are continuing the series we've been in called Living Martyrs. And throughout the series, we've been looking at these biblical and historical characters who literally gave their lives for the sake of Christ. Men like John the Baptist and Stephen the Evangelist. And I think it'd be easy to look at some of these stories and assume that that some of these famous martyrs were sort of the exception to the story, that, that their martyrdom was included because it was exceptional, but they weren't. In fact, their stories, the stories of them being killed for their faith, actually was, was more like the norm for these early Christians, these early followers of Christ. Did you know that? I think sometimes we think that because we meet these characters in the Bible stories so briefly, we get such a little snippet of their stories. Maybe they show up one or two times. We, we don't know the rest of the story. We don't know the story outside of scripture. We don't know what the rest of their lives entailed, and we don't know how their lives ended. But did you know, for instance, that of, of the 12 disciples of Jesus, not including Judas, but his replacement, of those 12, 11 of them died martyrs' death. Some of them gruesome, brutal deaths. Only John, the apostle John, escaped that. But if you study his life at all, you'll see that he experienced persecution throughout all of his life on account of his faith. But even they weren't the exception to the rule there's a place to write this down martyrs aren't the exception in christianity this week i would invite you to do a google search on new testament martyrs and i think you'll be surprised how many names show up and how many of those names you recognize yes stephen whose story we heard a couple of weeks ago but also the apostle paul that's well known who was beheaded uh, for his faith barnabas Everybody loves Barnabas, he was the encourager, but did you know that he was burned alive in Cyprus in AD 64? Other names like Priscilla and Aquila and Andronicus and Junia, they were martyred in Rome under Nero around 70 AD. Silas, Paul and Silas in the jail, he was martyred, he was killed in Philippi in 74 AD and the list goes on and on and on. In fact, virtually all of the big names you know from a lot of these stories, many of them died martyrs deaths ended up being killed for their witness their testimony peter and paul and james and matthew luke the guy who literally wrote the christmas story and the book of acts ended up dying a martyr's death these sort of epic stories of martyrdom What I think is actually remarkable, what's what's actually kind of crazy is that this little movement of the way, these followers of Jesus, these early Christians, it's amazing to me that that movement ever took off at all, that it didn't simply peter out. I mean, who would sign up for that kind of a movement? But not only did it not peter out, this movement experienced explosive growth and it went all over the world. But you know, that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. That's exactly what Paul called these early followers of Jesus to know and to live and to experience in their walk of faith. For instance, writing to the church in Corinth, Paul gave them and gave us this verse that we've been memorizing throughout this series. It's 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. It says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In the face of persecution, the threat of death, in response to these stories that they would have almost certainly have heard, these high-profile martyrdoms, He's saying, stand firm, let nothing move you. He's saying, give yourselves fully to that very work that is getting so many other Christians killed. Paul goes on then in the book of 2 Corinthians to define what giving yourselves fully has meant for him in his ministry. 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. He's saying that he has been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, has been exposed to death again and again. Five times I've received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. This is, I think, perhaps the worst sales pitch ever. For Christianity, right? He's basically saying it's been miserable and incredibly hard to follow Jesus. Who's in? I think it helps us understand why Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, wrote these words I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by my life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This was really hard stuff that Paul was enduring. And this invitation that Paul is extending was actually to a radically different way, a way that seems so challenging and so difficult. And yet, the early church thrived. It grew exponentially as its members were persecuted and as its leaders were being killed. In fact, the whole history of the church, the last 2,000 years of the history of the church has been marked by these stories of martyrs who ended up giving their lives for the sake of the gospel. I remember growing up, there was one of these stories that I heard regularly uh, of a martyr. It was the stuff of bedtime stories and of family devotions. It was stories told on car rides and in church sermons. It was the story of a young missionary pilot named Nate Saint Back in the 1950s, Nate Saint, along with his wife Marge, their kids, and four other families moved to a very remote part of Ecuador, and they began reaching out to this people group called the Wodani. They were known locally by a derogatory name. They were, they were called the Akas, or the Aca Indians, which simply meant naked savages but their actual name was the Wadani. The Wadani were these incredibly isolated group of people who spoke a language that was unrelated to any known language in the world. And, and truly, theirs was almost a stone age existence. There was no clothes, and they were known for their violence, for reaching out in these raiding parties that would come in and, and kill anyone who entered their territory. It would kill other tribes within the Wadani. They were known for killing people by spearing them to death. But Nate and Marge Saint were determined to find this elusive group and to share the gospel with them to help them break the cycle of violence. Saint spent months flying over the jungles of Ecuador in his little yellow Piper airplane searching for evidence of this legendary people. And in 1955, they had their first sighting. And so Nate and his friends began coming up with this plan where they would fly over the village and they would parachute in these gifts that they would try to send to them, these presents to try to establish that first contact, to begin to build a rapport, a relationship with the Wodani people. And eventually, after weeks of doing this, the Wodani people actually began to send gifts back to them. And then, just after Christmas in 1956... Nate and the other four missionary men made a plan to actually land that plane, land that Yellow Piper, and make actual first contact. On January 3rd, 1956, the five men landed on an island called Palm Beach, and they met the Wadani people for the first time in person. And that first contact went incredibly well. The missionaries were elated A few days later, Nate sent back a radio message to his wife, Marge, saying, pray for us, this is the day. And then radio silence for days. Several days later, when the men hadn't returned, a search party was sent out and the bodies of the five men would be found speared to death by the Wodanis. Nate's prized wristwatch was found on his body and it had been smashed, freezing the time at 12 minutes past three on Sunday, January 8th, 1956. You kind of expect this story to end there, but it doesn't. Remarkably, the women, the wives of these men and Rachel Saint, the, the sister of Nate Saint, they stayed They continued to pray for and minister to the Wadani people. Eventually, they actually ended up living, moving into the village and living with their children among the Wadani people, leading them to Christ and stopping the killing and the feuds that had gone back generations. Perhaps most amazingly, the very men who had killed Nate Saint, the village leaders, they experienced conversion and they became the very first elders of this fledgling church. Nate Saint's own children would later be baptized by the very men who had killed their father, baptized in the very river where his body had been found. Nate Saint's sister, Rachel, actually went on to live the rest of her life among the Wadani people, establishing hospitals and schools. And when she died at 80, she was buried among the Wadani right there in Ecuador. Think about that these women who had watched their husbands be killed, who had seen their brother killed, they chose to forgive and love. And it changed the world. I mean, we may know the names of the men who were killed, Nate Saint and and Jim Elliott and Roger Udarian and on and on and on, but uh, we don't necessarily know the names of these women We may not be as familiar with names like Marge Saint or Rachel Saint or Elizabeth Elliot, but these women were just as much martyrs, but they were living martyrs who gave their lives for the cause of Christ. It's an epic story. It's an amazing, inspiring story. In fact, this story inspired generations of so many young men and women over the past half century to to enter into world missions, international missions. In fact, my own father, when he was in high school, heard this story of Nate Saint, and he felt this call of God in his life and began his own epic journey toward becoming a missionary pilot, just like Nate Saint. I had a chance to sit down with him a couple weeks ago and talk about that journey. Let's watch. Thanks for doing this. I don't think we've ever done anything quite like this before. I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I shared earlier, you know, growing up, I heard a lot of stories about Nate Saint, uh, and I'd tell briefly kind of how the story of Nate Saint
1: kind of affected really the trajectory of, of your life and of my life, for that matter. For sure. Well, I had a neat pastor when I was a kid, and, and he, he recognized that I was kind of interested in mechanical things as well as I had a, a heart for God. And uh, so we were lifting weights one day, which was a neat thing. And he, uh, he asked me, uh, would you consider, like, uh, working in aviation? I, I've got a, 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 an example, Nate Saint, who, uh, who's, who's written? There's a book written about him, and uh, you might want to read that book. It might give you some inspiration about what God wants you to do with your life. So I read it, and I was I was uh, really charged up. I said, it's hey, called Jungle Pilot, right? Jungle I mean, Pilot. which is yeah. actually
0: still available, I think, on Amazon.
1: Yeah, sure. Today, it is. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Anyway, it was a great book, and it inspired me. It kind of set me out on a trajectory of my life. And so, yeah, what did that? What did that translate to? I mean, what, what what did that mean for you? Well, uh, I, I realized that the best program to, do, to go go-to for missionary aviation was Moody Bible Institute. They had a four-year program. And so uh, I applied for that and was accepted and went there and uh, graduated with all my flight ratings and uh, worked out great.
0: So that was Chicago for a couple of
1: years, down in North Carolina for a
0: couple of years, right? Well,
1: no, Tennessee, actually. Tennessee okay. Tennessee, yep. Elizabethan, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I,
0: I knew that, I, I should know that. And um, and then jungle camp, I mean, language
1: school. I mean, this is, this is a pretty significant, you went to language school in Switzerland? Well, we also went through deputation, which is raising funds for our trip, which was significant. But then, yes, we went to a a jungle camp in southern Mexico, which was a great experience living in the jungle. And then uh, we uh, went to uh, a flight orientation class as well and uh, some other orientation to Wycliffe itself, SIL, Summer Institute of Linguistics. And nine months language school, you were six months old when we left the country. And it wasn't easy because our parents, you know, your grandparents were- Thought were, you were crazy. Yeah, kind of, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so, but we, we did, and it was great. We spent nine months in Switzerland, which happens to be your mom's home country. I mean, yeah. her relatives. Sure. Anyway, and then we, uh, after nine months, we went to uh, Africa, Cameroon, West Africa, and uh, I served there.
0: So. So you're, I mean, it's been whatever, seven years, probably almost 10 years from that, you know, reading the book, you're actually finally in Africa.
1: Uh, so this, you're like, you're Nate Saint. I mean, you're like superhero. You're the epic Nate Saint, right? I mean. Well, it, it was, that was kind of my dream. Yes. And what uh, we got there and I realized that the flight program was very new and it really didn't have uh, a great need yet because there weren't enough people there to serve. So um, and then we had two airplanes and three pilots, so I wasn't flying very much during that year. But also, I, I did not do well with malaria. Uh, and mosquitoes loved me, I think, and uh, I did not do well. Uh, and also, your mom was was uh, quite uh, uh, affected by her pregnancy. She had a, her second pregnancy, and she was not doing well with that. And so uh, we did fly some, and I did some construction work, and it was a great great year in many ways, but it was a very hard year, and I was really kind of wondering, what do we do? This is not great. So I I talked this to- This is a, not Nate Saint. This is not Nate Saint. I did a lot of flying, You know, yeah, I did a fair yeah. amount of flying, but, um, but it wasn't Nate Saint, and I wasn't flying into these little tiny jungle strips. It was more flying from airport to airport, uh, bigger ones. But anyway, um, but I, I was flying with a doctor. I flew doctors some to go to different hospitals to do surgery or whatever, and, and I told them about her situation, said, you know, I think you really need to head back because your wife needs care, you need care. And there's not that much flying. So take a break. Just go back and see where things are at.
0: So you guys headed back to the States. Actually, my sister was born and had pretty major medical complications. And you realize that you're probably not ever going back long-term into this mission field. So this thing that you'd invested literally a decade of your life in the building, I mean, your whole life had been going on this path. Suddenly, it's 1975. And you're grounded, literally. How, how do you process that? What did, what did it mean for you to kind of live fully for
1: God when the whole plan changed? Well, I, I felt like God had called me to the mission field and to work in aviation, but um, it turns out that door was closing. Um, so that was hard, I struggled a lot. Um, probably 10 years I struggled with, uh, with this and just trying to figure out what God, what, what do you want me to do? Uh, I didn't have enough hours to fly for the airlines or I didn't have uh, the right credentials to actually uh, do flight instruction or training. Um, So I I wondered what I I would do. But I trusted God and he made it clear to me as time went on that he had other uh, roles for me to play. And uh, the biggest thing that I learned from my time in Cameroon was, you know, it's not that important what you do and where you do it. The important thing is what your, what your heart for God is and what you're willing to do for God and your commitment to him and what your ability to walk in the spirit would be, you know, just willingness to let the spirit guide your life every day. Hmm. So how has that
0: played out? I mean, how, what has ministry, you know, kind of living fully
1: devoted, fully all in for God, what, what does that look like? And, and what, what fruit have you seen in your time? Well, what it meant is uh, just being involved in a local church, committing to a body of, of believers, and then getting involved in the ministries that God put in front of you. So we worked with junior high kids, uh, middle school kids, and that was a challenge. You know, we were very involved. I was on church boards. We we did a lot of work with Campus Crusade crew, crew. and yeah. uh, did some discipling and mentoring there, which was a great, great experience for us. We did mission trips, several mission trips with junior high kids and high school kids. And that was a super good experience as well. And, uh, but then I, I got into the field of architecture and then I was able to serve churches. I worked with about 300 churches doing designs for churches, which was really fulfilling. And I believe my, God, my God-given calling was really architecture. But in order for me to do architecture, I really needed to do uh, this flight experience and, and uh, just trusting God for this part of my life. And I feel, I feel very clearly right now that God directed me to Africa, He directed us back. He directed me into architecture. He directed me to work with a local church and be involved wherever I could and to bloom where I was planted.
0: I remember as a kid, you routinely were going out to breakfast with different guys kind of throughout the week. These guys that you were discipling, uh, guys you led to Christ. You told me the story of one of those guys and kind of what he said to you in regard to you coming back from from Africa. Do you remember?
1: Well, I was explaining um, that what my life work was early on and I, I didn't really know why I was coming back at the time. And Dan said, I know why you came back. It was because you introduced me to Jesus.
0: You know, it was really clear when it was Africa that your mission field was Cameroon and your role was flying.
1: What did that look like in Menominee, Wisconsin as like an architect? Like what was, what was your mission field? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I felt like every one of my clients that I served uh, was was my mission field. And uh, I felt like my staff was kind of like my little church in a sense, you know, my, my group that I needed to relate to and uh, be the employer that I needed to be, and uh, also to to give clients a good value for their money and, and to give them something that was practical that would work for them. Mm. And uh, it was a neat thing, but also God gave me a lot of opportunities to serve like in the Rotary Club, you know? That's not a Christian organization, but they're good people, and they do a lot of good things around the world. And But I was so excited. I was president in 2000, for example, and uh, it allowed us to make a trip down to Argentina Buenos Aires, and we had a great time doing that, but it gave me an opportunity to be a Christian in front of these uh, these Rotarians, 100 Rotarians that uh, we just enjoyed being involved in, but involved in Chamber of Commerce and just community. I remember you going parades. to you know, like
0: after work things where it was just yeah. literally just networking, yeah. but you were there
1: networking, not primarily even for work, but for Christ. Yes. Well, I, I think that people need to be uh, where you are, where God has placed you, and then have a, have a witness where you are. I mean, just be the first, the God, the God person that wants you to be, you know, following Jesus, uh, even at Rotary Club and, and at Chamber and at special events, uh, different open houses for people, and uh, showing them what real Christian life really means in the real life, and not preaching every day, but just being an example. And I, I feel like people have come to know Jesus because of my work uh, in doing um, those kind of projects, you know, being being, in, being a Christian at work. And I think in a lot of ways, the impact that you were actually
0: able to have by coming back and being in the States has
1: been infinitely more than it might have been had you stayed. So, Well, the the neat thing about being in this culture, in the U.S., is we know this culture. We know the language pretty well. And (laughs) we know kind of where... You're still (laughs) constantly correcting my pronouns. (laughs) The deal is, is that, you know... It's so much easier to minister here than trying to do it there because people there are speaking French as a second language. So you're trying to overcome all these language barriers and cultural barriers, and it's so much easier. And we in the US don't even realize that. But you know what? Everyone has a a role to play. God has given each of us a desire, uh, an interest in certain areas, abilities to do different things. And you don't have to be a full-time pastor or missionary to do these things. You can reach out to people wherever you are at. I mean, this morning, a lady was at the gas pump. She said, she's probably 90 years old. She said, how how does this work? I don't understand what I'm supposed to do. So I walked her through the steps. I mean, just reaching out to a 90-year-old lady at a gas pump, I mean, wherever you can serve God. I mean, in, in the morning when you get up, say, God, how do you want me to serve you today? You know, and I haven't done this perfectly, but that's the prayer that I think we each can do is say, God, How can I be used of you today to to touch somebody's life and to to bring them to Jesus? I've seen you consistently
0: model that for the past 47 years of my life, and I'm grateful. And uh, thanks for being willing to share your story. I'm so grateful that my parents modeled that for me. I'm so glad that I got to see what it means to live out faith, not just on a mission field, but also in sort of everyday life. Let me let me be absolutely clear. I'm not saying we shouldn't be missionaries. The world absolutely needs missionary. Jesus made it clear that we are to reach all the earth. My parents remained involved with Wycliffe throughout the rest of my childhood. We went back to Cameroon multiple times. They, they still support countless missionaries. I'm not saying don't be a missionary. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. There's a place to write this down. I'm saying if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a missionary in your context right now, your mission field is right here in this context. We absolutely need to support and pray for foreign missionaries and realize that we can't outsource mission. Mission isn't just out there across an ocean. Mission exists right here in our schools and our neighborhoods and our workplaces. I think sometimes there's a tendency for us to wait for the epic. And we don't realize that there's epic every day around us. Epic can look like Rotary Club, which doesn't feel very epic. But the impact can be epic. It could be eternal. It could look like early morning breakfast discipling young believers. Epic can be working with teens on Wednesday nights and mentoring them discipling them into Christ. Epic could could look like simply being a high school student who's willing to actually stand firm and hold to the convictions in the face of incredible pressure, hold to the conviction that the word of God is actually authoritative and they're gonna live for Christ no matter what pressures you feel. That's epic. That has eternal consequences. Maybe not now, but in the future, in the lives of those around us. What's your everyday epic? See, there's a a, a tension in stories like those of Nate Saint and these other martyrdom stories. While we all have an idea of what it means to die for Christ on an epic mission field, I know that I've struggled. Uh, We just heard that my dad struggled for like 10 years to try to figure out what does it mean to actually live for Christ in the middle of what feels sometimes like a very mundane, unepic life, there's a place to write this down. While we aren't all called to die for Christ, we are all called to live for Christ. The impact that Nate Saint had on the world by giving his life was absolutely incredible. But it was also the lives of those women who, in the face of tragedy, chose forgiveness, chose to turn the other cheek, as Chris talked about a couple of weeks ago. It was their willingness and in, in even the mundaneness of that that changed the hearts and the minds of the Wadani people. They also gave their lives to the cost of Christ. And the good news is that is just as true for us today. While we may not all be called to go to the jungles of Ecuador, all of us are called to be missionaries. There's no such thing as a disciple of Jesus who isn't making more disciples of Jesus. The Apostle Paul also talked about this in a passage that is so, I think, well paved, is what Chris often says. This is a passage we're familiar with that we've heard so many times that perhaps it's begun to lose, it's begun to lose its meaning for us. Paul talks about this very thing, Romans 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, a holy and pleasing. To God, this is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. To offer ourselves, our lives as a living sacrifice, to be living martyrs. In whatever our context is, and Paul says that if we do, if we are willing to be that living sacrifice, then we will be able to determine God's purpose, God's will for our lives. Purpose. I think it's something that's missing in the lives of so many of the people around us. Perhaps missing even in our own lives. I think we should lean into that. There's a phrase that that was popular at least for a while on social media this idea of kind of living my best life. You know anybody know anybody heard that before? <laughs> what does that mean living my best life? Well according to urbandictionary.com and I don't necessarily recommend going there because there's some there's stuff that's not great. But according to them Living my best life is a stupid phrase that's used commonly on Instagram to give the false reality that you can wake up and choose which life you want to live. Perhaps you want to be a lazy dog or a human facing the challenges of whether to have avocado on toast or a green smoothie for breakfast. Either way, it's got to be the best breakfast life you could possibly be living. It's an idea that whether or not it's... It's popular as a phrase. It's still very popular in culture. This idea of living for pleasure and happiness and then carefully curating your life on social media to present our best life, even if it's not actual or healthy or even a reality at all. And the stats suggest that that it's not our best life at all. And that, in fact, is leading to a lot of unhappiness and depression and anxiety. What if as followers of Christ, we stop conforming to that pattern of this world that that calls to live our best life and instead ask the question, what would it mean to live a sacrificed life? What would it mean to pursue Christ's best life in us? And I think Paul is answering that question. He's answering the question is, what is my purpose? He's saying the purpose as followers of Christ is to offer our lives as living sacrifices, to be living sacrifices martyrs all followers of Christ are called to be martyrs it may not get you killed but it will cost you your life Jesus said so it shouldn't come as a surprise he said in Matthew 16 that Jesus said to his disciples whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves take up their cross and follow me For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What does that even mean? To lose our life for Christ. What does it mean if it doesn't mean literally being killed? I was talking to Pastor Dan about this the other day. And I think he gave me some really interesting ideas. He was saying that that Christianity isn't sort of this like A equals B. You know, A plus B equals C. It's not a formula where, where it's gonna mean the same thing for every person. He, he, he pointed to the story of the rich young ruler, for instance, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus said, you have to sell everything you own and give it to the poor. And the guy walked away sad, but then, so you say, okay, well, that's the solution. That's the formula. Like, being rich is bad. You have to sell everything, and give it away. And that's how we live the Christ's best life for us. But then you look at another story of Zacchaeus who was a scoundrel, who came by his money by stealing and thieving and and by taking money, inappropriate taxes from the Jewish people. He was a betrayer of his people. He was horrible. And Jesus didn't say anything about him giving his money back. It's not a formula that we could just simply apply to other people. Are you called to go to Ecuador? Maybe. Are are you called to minister in a context where you might be killed for your faith? Maybe. Maybe. Are you going to be called to go to Africa and spend years in school and go to Africa and take your whole family there only to discover that God's best for you is actually to be an architect in some small town in Wisconsin? (laughs) Maybe. I can't answer what that means for you. But I can tell you that if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to be willing to let go of your plans, let go of your agendas, and become a living martyr. The life of Christ followers is a call to daily sacrifice. And that's going to look different for each of us. And the only way to know what that means, the only way is to do what Jesus says. It's to follow him. To allow him to lead and guide and direct our lives. And in following Christ, we find our everyday epic stories. We find our substantive something, as we like to say here. We aren't all called to move to South America. But we're all called to share our faith and to give our lives. I want to end by just reading a a, a quote from Nate Saint that I think is so powerful. He said, People who do not know the Lord ask why in the world we waste our lives as missionaries. They forget that they too are expending their lives and when the bubble has burst, they'll have nothing of eternal significance to show for the years they've wasted. I would rather die now than to live a life of oblivious ease in so sick a world. The invitation that Paul made to us, the invitation that Jesus made to us was to offer ourselves as living martyrs so that we might discover our purpose it's so that the world might discover Christ.